Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. Quail Forever editor Chad Love wrote the following for the Quail Forever website, a blog recently. I'm going to read from from that blog. A quail in February is not the same animal or bird it was in November. By the end of January, it's been hunted, hammered, harried, and hounded. Chad likes alliteration. I like alliteration. Alliteration is amazing. By legions of hunters in other age. And it's seen the warm salad days of early fall change over into the cold, icy grips of winter. We don't use the phrase salad days as, what is as much as we should. Well, we'll, we'll add it. It's like the good old days. Yeah, it's, it's like salad it's, days. Yeah. You've never heard that. Eat a salad. No, no. I'm oh. educated already. Uh, <laughs> what are some of the key differences between hunting quail early and hunting them in the twilight of the season? In today's episode of On the Wing Podcast, we're going to attempt to answer that question. As we record this, it's Friday afternoon, and and you can hear the banter from the crew. We're already uh, looking forward to the weekend, and and it is a lively bunch. So we are talking late-season quail hunting tips um, in this episode. This is part of our path. To the Uplands content series. So um, let me thank first and foremost our path to the Uplands sponsors. Sound Gear, Hearing Protection, a national sponsor as well. Sport Dog, Electronic Dog Training Systems, a national sponsor as well. Alps Outdoors makes hunting equipment and camping equipment. So they have camping equipment I used on my re- recent late season quail hunting trip with llamas. Yeah, that'll come on a later podcast. Alps is also a national sponsor. And Federal Ammunition, Path of the Upland sponsor, national sponsor, and the single longest supporter of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. So thanks to those partners for bringing this episode to your ears. The group that we've assembled today includes Chad Love, uh, the Quail Forever editor and the words I was just reading. Marissa Jensen, our path to the Uplands leader. And Andy Edwards returns our Quail Forever Quail program manager. It's going to be lively. It's going to mm-hmm. be real. It's going to be raw. We've already been talking about hallucinogenic drugs before we even hit record. Wow. And, and yes. I don't really know how that plays into late season quail hunting. We'll have to let Chad tell us that. But uh, let's I don't know. Start. No, let's no, either. Start. They fly a little we'll different. <laughs> well, I just got to say though, Bob, that like I've been on three or four of these lately, and that intro you just did of all those sponsors was pretty much the most Ricky Bobby ass NASCAR version <laughs> right. of fucking sponsors that I've heard in a while. It was Shake pretty epic. It was awesome. Take yeah. him back. Take him back. <laughs> um. Let's start with, uh, we'll go around the horn, talk about where folks have been quail hunting this season. 
um, as a as a way to ease into this late season tipped conversation because you know a lot of the a lot of the pheasant range is now shut down as we record this not all but a lot of it but quail seasons are you know I'd say going strong to mid season we're round and uh, we're definitely round in second base heading to third mm-hmm. um, but uh, it's perfectly timed for some late season quail any trips and with that. Let's start with uh, with Chad. What um, residing in Oklahoma, but a guy that's been uh, putting some tread on his tires, both vehicles and boots. Yeah, you've, um, you've been you've been around the block a few places this year. Yeah, about uh, almost three thousand miles on the truck in just the past uh, three weeks or so. Mm. So so yeah. So I've uh, started out the season in Nebraska. Uh, just because that is you know, sort of the, the the nearest state to me with the the you know the the uh, earliest opener, and so hunted Nebraska several times, hunted Kansas a few times. Uh, interestingly enough, I've I've hunted Oklahoma probably the least amount of time I have in a, in a number of years, just because mm. I've been gone so much. But uh, I've uh, so I've hunted there, uh, New Mexico, going back to Arizona next week, and uh, we'll probably close out the season in southeastern Oklahoma and possibly a trip to South Carolina, depending on how things shake out. So. New Mexico, is it the most underrated quail destination on, uh, in the country or, or is that hyperbole? Do I need to, uh, do, do I really need to answer that? <laughs> I was going to say, are we getting a truthful answer? Do you, yeah, <laughs> that depends on if you want an honest answer or not. I, I will say that New Mexico, uh, is is one of my favorite places to hunt. It's quickly become one of my favorite places to hunt for a, a couple of reasons. Uh, one, it's fairly close to where I live in Oklahoma. I can get to, to eastern New Mexico in just a few hours. You know, I can wake up in the morning and I can be hunting by eleven thirty. Mm-hmm. Uh, another reason I like New Mexico is is uh, it's just to me it's the most photogenic state in the nation. Uh, I have family in New Mexico. My dad was born in New Me- and raised in New Mexico, so familiar with the state. And I just think it's a, a gorgeous chunk of real estate. Uh, and it's got it's the only state where you can shoot four species of quail. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you you have you have bobs, gambles, scalies, and and merns, and that's mm-hmm. just such a unique opportunity. And it's I've I've heard of people shooting the New Mexico slam in one day. I, I mm. it's mm. it would be very very difficult to do, but it is possible. Um, but another reason I like New Mexico is obviously it's a it's a big public land state. There's a lot of BLM and there's a lot of state of New Mexico land to hunt. I mean, you will. You could you could spend your lifetime hunting the state of New Mexico and not hunt at all, and and there are good quail numbers, especially desert quail, you know, scalies and and uh, and gambles. Uh, so so yeah, I mean, I I don't know if it's the most underappreciated spot in the nation, but it it's up there. It's I, I think it's one of them. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of potential for 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 quail hunting in New Mexico. I think. And talking with Al, our, our West region director, he always kind of brings it up. He's like, everybody goes West to hunt big game. They just, they forget about the upland birds, you know, and mm-hmm. some of that's thankfully so for him, we will say, but yeah, I think that's, I, I'm one of those. I just don't, don't get out there to do that typically. And the I weather. Think, the, yeah, I mean, well, it's yeah. like, you know me, I, I'm, I'm allergic to snow. I am not a northern <laughs> person. Uh, you know, so I'm, I'm Southern. So it, to me, the, 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 the temperate climate. I mean, it can get cold. And when I was there last time, I mean, we had one day when it was pretty miserable. But for the most part, if you give me the choice of of hunting in a 
a, a, a t-shirt or hunting in a parka, I'll take the t-shirt every time. Mm-hmm. I, I often say that uh, upland birds live in the most beautiful places. And um, I do think about that with, with New Mexico. Uh, you know, so many states, you can use so many examples, but, you know, from New Mexico has such variety of topography, m- mountains to desert, to, you know, where the Merns country, you know, one of the, one of the few states you can hunt Merns. It just, it's a beautiful state and uh, it, they do get snow in New Mexico, uh, which uh, it snowed last time you were there. So folks can blame Chad for bringing the snow to New Mexico. Yes. Yes, the weather bringer brought the snow. Uh, I do have a reputation for bringing lousy weather wherever I go, and it it uh, held true this time too. Even it's down be- south where I was, you know, it's <laughs> it snowed there. That's right. It, yeah. Uh, speaking of travel, uh, Marissa just returns from Hawaii. Were you hunting quail in Hawaii? Because oh, I, I didn't wish. know that there were quail. There. <laughs> <laughs> there, you know what there is, and I'm like desperately looking around for uh, the bird book. I think they, I think they introduced. Is it? I think they introduced California quail mm. um, to the Big Island, uh, but I didn't see. I didn't see any quail. I did see. I'm probably going to mispronounce it. Franklins, Franklins. Mm-hmm. Um, they were wow. all over the place, and they're an introduced game bird um, to the Big Island, and. They're pretty cute, a little smaller than like a sharp-tailed grouse or a prairie chicken, but they run the same. And I just, oh my gosh, I just, they're adorable. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see any pheasants while you were there? Because I've heard stories of mm. pheasants living in the pineapple orchards of Hawaii. I, I didn't. And I think they have two different species of pheasants um, that they have introduced there as well. So huh. I'm pretty sure I'm going to have to go back. <laughs> um, just for an upland hunt trip. I think mm-hmm. uh, it's a, I've been talking about it for a while and I just need to make it happen. So. <laughs> I know a, a couple of people they're, they're retired. So I'll qualify They go turkey hunting in Hawaii every oh. year. And apparently wow. there's a fair number of, of wild turkeys. So it sounds like, you know, wake up, you know, go, go, hunt a turkey at the base of a volcano and uh, make your way back to the uh, surf side for, you know, a margarita. I don't know what the drink is in Hawaii. Everything. Uh, a Mai Tai. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> then a, a little little pineapple roasted wild turkey on the bobby. Oh. And pineapple tastes completely different in Hawaii. I don't know if it's just a, you mm. know, placebo thing where you're, I'm in Hawaii, it's beautiful, but it's... It's just such a wonderful flavor. So, oh my goodness. So I took you on a left turn. Where have you hunted quail this season? (laughs) Well, that's okay. I was afraid that you were going to go to Andy next and it was just going to be this complete, utter disappointment with me at the very end. Oh Um, no. (laughs) Believe me, it's going to be, I'm going to be the one that brings in the sad sack report here. My quail season has been, uh, my upland season has been a little, a little bit of a, a bummer this year. I'm coming off an injury and just haven't gotten to get out as, as much as I would have liked. Um, but I'm laughing after you guys are talking about, you know, Chad being the, the bringer of lousy weather. So one of the few quail hunts that I've done was here in Nebraska, um, and which is where I, where I live, where I'm from. And Chad came up for a hunt and I was like, I'm going to take him to my quail spot. It's, it's my like favorite spot to hunt quail ever 
what was what was the wind, Chad? Seventy miles oh, an hour. <laughs> yeah, it, it was. It was. I, I have. I took some video of Marissa trying to walk into the wind. Uh, that was. That was probably the 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 most wind I've ever tried to hunt quail in. It was just ridiculous. Oh wow. Yeah, it, it was. It was I remember at one point we're walking and um, there's a, a Bob White that gets up. We didn't see it. The dogs didn't get on it or anything. And it, it gets up, but we didn't see it until it just the wind. It wasn't even flying. The wind just took it and it just blew past us. And we kind of looked at each other like, what? <laughs> what was that? <laughs> so we kind of gave up and decided, you know what? This is we, we put the effort in. Um, we're proud of ourselves. We. We tried we, to yeah, get through we, the we got out there. We looked like quail hunters. Now, now we let's looked just, amazing. Yeah, yep, let's find the some lifestyle. Cover. Hey, it's the Wicked Witch and the Flying Monkeys. What the heck? The only other quail we saw that whole day just went straight up the tree and it just like disappeared over. And yeah. it was like, huh. yeah, we're mm. we're done. So, uh, but no, you know, it's uh, I I have a young dog. She's um, about two and a half. So this is really kind of her her season where she's starting to figure it out and. Um, went on a hunt and, and shot her first pheasant over her, but then she um, pinned down just a beautiful covey of quail. Uh, and she, it was just really fun to kind of see her start to figure it out. Um, so even though I haven't gotten to get out as much as I would have liked, it's been, it's been fun experiences when I have. And uh, we still have until the end of January here in Nebraska for the bobs. Um, so I'm hoping, got my fingers crossed, we've got snow coming in here soon, maybe get out and see what we can't find. Very good. Um, Andy, coming to us from Tennessee. Yep. Uh, Tennessee season still open? Oh, yeah. All the way through February. Yeah, we're open for... We're open for months still. Um, so yeah, kind of along those lines for us, um, our deer season went out last weekend, our mm. youth season. Uh, we had a, a, a youth season at the end of the deer season. So it's really, um, we're just a couple weeks into the the really kind of meat of the season here um, for most of our Southeastern states, I would say. And, and uh, Alabama actually still has a deer season in, uh, which it honestly does kind of, limit some access options uh, for public and private land uh, at times. And so, yeah, we're just now kind of getting out. Um, I did a couple early season uh, upland hunts, uh, pheasant hunt, Iowa, and then a Wisconsin, I mean, a, uh, I'm sorry, a, a UP. Gosh, that, that's going to really rub some people the wrong way that I mix those two up. <laughs> Including uh, one, of, one of your... Um, you, oh, yeah, yeah. A UP, um, a UP and grouse hunt. should be mixed together, Andy. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, so it was purposefully, uh, purposefully mm -hmm. done just for you, Bob. Um, yeah, what's the difference, you know? Uh, and so, so did those and, and really had been deer hunting a little bit, uh, then just quite honestly, holidays and all those things getting, uh, I won't say in the way, but, uh, took priority. And so have plans on a, um, a Western hunt, an Arizona hunt at the end of the month, first of February. And then, um, I'm going to also try to get out here locally in the next couple of weeks uh, on some wild birds in Tennessee. I uh, have some plans with some chapter folks to do, to do this, that here in middle Tennessee, even so cool. excited about those possibilities. Yeah, right on. Well, I um, want to take a moment here and, and thank um, on X um, hunt app. Uh, I mentioned national sponsor, another national sponsor is on X hunt. 
um, use the go to on X um, on the uh, internet and uh, download the app for a risk-free seven-day trial and use the code quail or pheasants during the checkout process and you can get 20% off at onxhunt.com. It's a tremendous tool. They're ter- terrific supporters of our conservation mission. Um, so please definitely go to Onyx and uh, download that app and, and you will find yourself using it. Pheasants, quail, sharp tails, rough grouse, you name it. You hunt public, bir- public land birds. It is a tremendous tool. Uh, as I mentioned in the opening, we are going to be riffing off, riffing R-I-F-F, um, off a blog that um, Chad wrote about late season quail hunting. And he's broken it down, um, some tips into to categories, um, food, cover, tactics, and expectations. So that's how we're going to tackle um, the heart of this quail forever oriented episode with chad's uh pointer having a he put that dog up which honestly never fails for every yeah. every team's meeting that we have every team's meeting she uh, she does something she yeah. hijacks it but that's that's to be expected it creates um atmosphere for the listeners <laughs> yeah. it's the tail it's the tail that does it if it had a short tail yeah it's yeah. a pointer be fine right that's, that's right three of us on here we got you outnumbered so let's start with food chad you as you wrote uh, as we get deeper into winter food sources become increasingly important and, and you go from there with what you're looking for related to food quail and late season hunting so give us your overview of of the food section um, in this category. Yeah. Okay. So, and and I have to preface this by saying my saying I am neither a botanist nor a biologist. So uh, so any any of the advice that I give is is to be taken with a a, a grain of salt. But you know, it, typically early season. You know, our our quail season in Oklahoma starts in in early mid November, usually the second Saturday in November, and and a lot of times it's still hot. And uh, there's still a lot of vegetation around. And so it, it, to me, it, it seems that early season quail are a, a bit more dispersed. Uh, they've got a lot more food sources. Uh, a lot of them are probably still eating insects. And so uh, it's just a little bit different game from the late season. So as, as we progress into the season, what I start looking for are sort of those high value foods that have a lot of a lot of uh, uh, bang for the buck. So, you know, like one of the things that I look for, like around here, we have predominantly sand sage prairie, you know, rolling sand hills covered with sand sage prairie and you know, interspersed creek bottoms and things like that. And out there, uh, there are a lot of uh, ragweed flax. Rag, ragweed is a, is a pretty uh, important, you know, quail food. And so, uh, uh, and it's also a high value quail food. And so Toward the late season, I, I tend to start concentrating on those food sources where there's a lot of them concentrated in a small area. Mm. Uh, and so I, I tend to find birds around those. Uh, another one that I look for, uh, native prairie sunflowers is, a, is a, another food source that I really key in on late season because not only does it offer a lot of seed, and a lot of high quality protein source for the quail, but it also offers sort of that like vertical brushy stemmy cover. Yeah. that they that they kind of prefer at the same time so so they you know you have a little bit of, of, of cover you know cover from avian predators combined with a food source and so 
that's another one that I uh, I kind of look for. And and also, um, you know, this time of year, you know, late season, like milo fields, crop fields, things like that. Uh, I do find quail kind of keyed in on, um, you know, cut cut my wheat stubble. I mean, I've shot I've shot quail out of uh, uh, a wheat stubble field. As a matter of fact, uh, I think it was the year before last on a quail hunt with Marissa uh, up in Nebraska. We 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 flushed a covey of quail in a late afternoon covey of quail feeding and wheat stubble. So so they kind of key in, I think, on those those concentrated sources of of uh, of seed and food late in the season. I think wheat stubble is one of the most underrated places. And I, we might have even talked about this on the last podcast, Bob, but I mean, it is, there's a lot of excitement to be had in those. Yeah, we, I think we did talk about it. Um, I thought we we think talked about it during the late season pheasant hunting episode in that the intersection of where wheat stubble is and Kind of like, especially as I think about Nebraska and Kansas, those little hollows, canyons, draws that you can find on Onyx maps, especially mm. I think about open fields and waters, the walk-in program in Nebraska, where they have wheat stubble enrolled. Mm -hmm. And then you can find these little islands of habitat that you can't see from the road. Yep. And they're these little draws and it's just, they tend to be, loaded with bobwhites, particularly midday when the birds are feeding and they're loafing right at the intersection of that stubble and, and those draws. What The other thing is Chad was talking that I, that I think we should just mention is we're sort of, when we talk about late season pheasant hunting tips, it's easier to make a homogenous sort of statements. Yep. When we're talking about late season quail hunting tips, Chad is writing this from perspective of a person that lives in Oklahoma and predominantly hunts bobwhite quail. But for the listener, it's a it's challenging to to draw or paint with a real broad brush and cover mountain quail, valley quail, scale quail, gambles quail, burns quail, <laughs> right, and, and Bob. So the way we're approaching this conversation. You know, Chad's blog is written from the perspective of primarily Bob Whites, and then we'll we'll sort of interject um, yeah. if there's differences in some of those birds. Get you know, there are places like Chad. One of your favorite spots I know has scalies and bobs together, so there's some some definite parallels. But you know, it's it's just important for the listener to know we're we're coming yeah, at this know, primarily from Bob Whites. Yeah, but but you know, I mean. A quail is a quail is a quail, you know, and, and as long as as their their needs are met mm -hmm. in, you know, food, cover, you know, shelter, water, uh, it, even though it may not look like traditional quail habitat. I mean, you know, and we can get into that when we start talking about some of the late season tactics. I mean, you, you might find quail there just like with the wheat stubble is a perfect example is that, you know, you don't typically think of finding a covey of bobwhites in like way out in the middle of a, of a wheat stubble field. But uh, mm -hmm. just like what you were saying with the pheasants, I mean, this this stubble field was, you know, it, it, was a, it was a corner stubble field. And so there's a creek bottom back behind it. And then there's like what looked like a CRP field on the, on the side. And so, you know, those quail have everything that they need mm -hmm. really close. And so as long as they have those needs met, you know, they're going to, they're going to utilize wheat stubble, you know, right. so mm -hmm. it's a, uh, it, you don't really want to get locked into too many like sort of traditional points of view or traditional notions of where you're going to find a quail. Because if there's one thing I found, you know, quail hunting is that 
you, you can make all sort of general all sorts of generalizations that you want, but quail are going to be where quail are going to be. You know, we were talking <laughs> earlier, Bob, uh, earlier this year mm -hmm. or sometime, uh, you and I and, and Carp were talking that uh, I was hunting on a, a, a piece of public ground here in Oklahoma that had fantastic habitat everywhere all around it. And, and I found a covey of quail in the middle of a cattail slough. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I mean, that's just, they're just, they're unpredictable little birds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, very good point. And, it, it, you know, I'm thinking an Andy here as the biologist in the crew. Oh, you no. know, it, it, that recipe, right? Food, thermal cover, or, or cover for whatever the temperature, whether it's shade, if it's too hot, or warmth, if it's cold. Yeah, um, right. You know, the, that, the recipe that Chad's talking about, you can sort of extrapolate out across the species, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. I, uh, Chad sprung this agenda on me, so I hadn't had time to scroll through Wikipedia far enough yet. But I, um, <laughs> in, my, in my basics, uh, I would say, though, that one of the things you hear all the time is people having trouble finding quail late in the season. Mm. And they seem like they're everywhere or they're quail all over early season. Now they're gone. They're all hunted out. I don't think it's that as much as a lot of times, just those things you're touching on Chad is um, they, they are keying on, you know, the prime, the prime, the prime food that's going to give them the best, you know, um, caloric uh, value combined with the best escape cover combined with the best thermal cover. And so, their options get a whole lot, you know, smaller and fewer later in the season. And so a lot of times that's not anywhere near the road for two reasons. Uh, hunters have, have harassed, I'm going to use one of your H's, maybe uh, uh, they've been harried uh, early on and they're, they're moved hounded. away from, there you go, they've been hounded. And um, they've moved away from the road, but they've also moved to those areas where that little, you know, canyon or, or um, thermal cover is there brushy and it happens to be right adjacent to some really quality mm -hmm. uh, food. And so um, they're doing that year after year for the same, for the same reasons, not even though it's not the same birds, but yeah, I think it's, I think that's why late season's all the more challenging, all the more fun when you get it right. It can be pretty awesome. Yeah. And you have a tip that you mentioned in the blog and it just to circle back to um, inspecting the crops when you do find success mm. um you know that early season mid season late season grouse sharp tails quail pheasants um that's an important tip chad go ahead and, and hit that yeah well it, i mean so i'm just curious to see what all my birds i always inspect the oh, crops yeah. of the birds that i that i shoot just because i'm always curious about what they're eating and uh, I, I can learn a little bit from it, you know, in, in early season, whether it's uh, like, you know, prairie chickens, uh, uh, whether it's prairie grouse or other prairie grouse shark tails or, or quail or pheasants or whatever, you know, it's just, mm -hmm. it's interesting to see the difference. Like early on, I mean, they will, they'll eat whatever there is available to eat. Like I, I inspected the, the crop of, of a, a couple of prairie chickens earlier on in the season. And, and they were full of cicadas, like nothing but cicadas. Mm -hmm. And uh, same thing with quail, you know, it's like I've, I found the crops of quail just stuffed with grasshoppers and, you know, moths and, and caterpillars and things like that early on in the season. And as you as you progress into the season, of course, those insects go away. And then you start seeing things, you know, like ragweed seed, sunflower seed. And then on toward the end of the season, what I'm finding a lot of are, are 
there's there's not as much there doesn't seem to be as much uh variety in, in the late season crops uh and and maybe i'm wrong maybe biologists could, could speak to this but i what i find are a lot more of those crops that are 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 food sources that are concentrated whether it's you know ragweed seed or, or sunflower seed or, or seed from a pollinator strip you know something like that so they do i think kind of tend to to key in on those those high value sources later on in the season mm-hmm. I absolutely agree. One thing, and this is not quail hunting, but I did it this year for grouse hunting because um, we, we were in a year that had, um, they had a frost, mm-hmm. a late frost in the UP, and it really knocked back a lot of the standard crops um, that that would always be there. And so I used uh, iNaturalist or actually uh, Seek, a, mm-hmm. a, a dumbed down version of that. That's my, my words, not theirs, but an easier version maybe. Um, of iNaturalist and I literally pulled the crops, put them out on a plate and I could identify there was, there was barren strawberry, there was winterberry, there was all these, all these, you know, leaves or berries or seeds that I could identify through that app, um, not knowing what they were. And I thought that was really interesting because I'm going to do that. I'm going to start doing that a lot more. Uh, if I don't know what it is in the crop, hey, let's see if I can figure it out. Because you so, can do that with bugs as well. I mean, yeah, it'll to, identify. To that point, uh, this sounds a little weird, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, a, a few years back, I <laughs> I saved the crops. I saved the crop contents of all the quail that I had shot that year. Yeah. Dried them out, and I planted my quail crop yeah. plot the next year. That does not sound weird at all. <laughs> I, I, I mean, that it sounds was, really. It was, that's really biologisty, but yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, typically I don't shoot enough quail to actually like, you know, I mean, I could maybe fill a tire, a tire garden, you know, one of the, <laughs> but uh, uh, it, it was interesting what came up, you know, it's like you, you, they eat all sorts of different things. You know, you never, you never think that, that they'd eat like, the, you know, these tiny little seeds that you can't hardly see. Some of, some of them are microscopic, you know, so, yeah. so yeah, so there's, there's your top tip for today. If you make yourself <laughs> would, a quail crop garden. It would be really weird if you made a smoothie and you drank that at the end of the year. It's like, I am the quail I, king. I, oh, yes. Yeah, Chad, you didn't I make it weird at all. Bob, Bob <laughs> took it, Bob it weird. Well, since, since, you know, I, I've taken <laughs> it weird already, I'll, I'll take it one more step. Um, and this is uh, KFAN, the, the radio show I do with, with um, Billy on Thursdays and Saturdays. We recently had a naturalist on, and I asked a question about, you guys maybe have heard like a bird's being punch drunk from eating like oh. crab apples, um, yeah. you know, rotten. And, and he said that's legitimate, like in late season, rough grouse, eat crab apples that it can it, it it intoxicate them um like it's an alcohol and it can make them kind of mm-hmm. stupid so there's your rough grouse hunting tip you know late season find some crab apples not only is it food but they're dumb birds <laughs> how do you how do you shoot a drunk bird <laughs> they, they, well it, you know grouse never yeah. fly straight so this they apparently yeah. makes maybe them it makes them straight and drought, right? <laughs> So, well, there you go. So, uh, you know, we've, we've taken this in all sorts of weird directions. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, make a break for it and thank uh, South Dakota, uh, South Dakota Tourism, <laughs> South Dakota Game Fishing Parks. Make next fall your best season yet with South Dakota's Hunt the Greatest giveaway. Learn more about a chance to win free Shields gear and an epic pheasant hunt next season at Hunt 
thegreatest.com, thanks to South Dakota Tourism, also a national sponsor of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. The second category for our conversation is cover. And Chad writes, cover becomes more important to quail in the late season. Take it from there, Chad. What's uh, what's cover mean to you um, as as the season goes on and what you're looking for? Uh, in a nutshell, uh, I look for thicker cover as the season goes on, generally speaking. You know, like, like what Andy was saying earlier, quail are pretty widely dispersed early in the season. Uh, there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot more cover earlier in the season. There's a lot of, you know, like a lot of the brushy cover has leaves on it. Uh, it's just easier for them to, to hide. They've, you know, they've got a lot of shade and, and, you know, as we get farther into the season, uh, a lot of that cover opens up, gets sparser. And, uh, uh, I find that, you know, as it gets colder, uh, thermal cover becomes more important to quail. And so it, what I'm looking for in late season cover, uh, is is typically much thicker cover than what I would would normally hunt early in the season. I mean, I, I I'll hunt thick cover you know all season long, but I key in more on thick cover late in the season. And and by cover, you know, thick cover, uh, we're talking you know sumac thickets uh, down here, shinnery oak, uh, sand sage, uh, sand plums are a big one. You know, there's a, a strong correlation. You know, in, in most quail hunters' minds, especially down here, between sand plum thickets and, and quail and it's a it's a correct correlation you know you you typically will find quail in sample thickets because it offers good thermal cover offers good escape cover offers good overhead cover for maybe predators so generally speaking as i get later on into the season i start looking for those stands of thick brushy cover yeah i i think um you just brought up you, you mentioned thermal cover and i think uh, and i'm totally in a couple of ways going to just rob stuff that people have said already. So it's what I do. Um, James Martin on a previous podcast talked about thermal cover, but not maybe in the way most of us would think for late season quail hunting. He mentioned thermal cover in the fact that a lot of times in South Georgia where they're hunting, uh, when you get into February, it can be warm, especially in the yeah. afternoons. And he will find, he will hunt the shady side of uh, woodlots, uh, particularly because that's where the quail are in the shade in those in those late season sunny days i think that's also uh, something that plays out with with sumac or with even briar thickets um sometimes we are you know we're finding birds in warm on warm days we're actually in the shade um as hmm. much as anything so um that that's an interesting thing that i hadn't always thought about but i thought it was it was a great point that he brought up a couple of weeks ago on the podcast um one thing that that i i just always go back to this and i think how we we stood around and kind of looked like a collective uh, idiot says uh, we were at a, <laughs> and I'm saying this because one of the guys is going to listen to it. Michael hook was in this group. He's going to really love me for pointing <laughs> him out. He's been on the podcast. He's mm -hmm. a great guy, but we were in South Carolina doing interviews for a coordinating wildlife biologist. And we were looking at this great uh, cover uh, it was phenomenal brood rearing and nesting cover. And, um, he brought up, you know, we see, we hear birds here a lot in the spring, but we, in our fall counts, we, we don't hear birds here. Why is that? We brought it up to the, to the applicant who basically made us all look silly. Uh, and, and that was Jordan Nanny, uh, who's now, uh, one of the foresters in Tennessee, but he said, well, they're not here. They're over there. You know, he points behind us, which was on private ground. It was really thick. It was thick, um, you know, mature pine stands with a lot of cover on the ground which is 
absolutely where they where they were and where they should be but we just hadn't you know you're like what this is so great nine months of the year mm. why are they not here uh you know during those three months that you would think and he said well if you look at the ground like this this sweet gum uh is not gonna have any leaves on it there's providing no winter cover you know nor is this you know single stem of ragweed or these you know this open that's that really great brood rearing cover but it doesn't provide those thickets those those covey headquarters if you will at the time of year when when we're all talking about predator avoidance or or thermal cover on a on a colder mm-hmm. day so it was very interesting and, and we all kind of looked at each other behind his back and we're like yeah he's absolutely <laughs> right and we should have thought that through but uh he got the job so <laughs> So when I think about quail and in this, I would, I'll paint with a really broad brush across all species, you know, because it just occurred most recently for me with scalies in Arizona. Um, and, and, and Chad mentioned this too, in a related way. I think quail, I think brush, you know, and if I'm, I come over a hill in Kansas or I come, you know, through a patch of, grassy you know desert ground in arizona and on the horizon you know in my field of view i see a patch of mesquite in arizona or a patch of you know a plum thicket and like my head is magnetized and my dog is magnetized mm-hmm. to head towards that brush mm-hmm. they as i think about the quail i've hunted and nowhere near as much as as, as you all but i think like 90% of the quail coveys that I've put up are really correlated with a patch of brush, not like in the, you know, open field anywhere. Is there truth in that? Or is it, uh, am I making too broad of a generalization? You, you know, even, and I'm talking not only late season, I'm talking generally like the coveys, maybe they're running, but when they get up, it's like they have that uncanny ability to get up on the other side of a patch of brush from me and my dog. Mm-hmm. True or false? It, it depends. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look to Chad and Andy to, to verify this because, uh, you know, it may just be my experience. But I think it's, it's more so time of day, um, you know, and, and what they're actively doing, feeding, um, you know, coveyed up for the evening, whatever it may be. Um, and uh, Chad, Andy, cause you can explain more. <laughs> no, I, I think you're right. I think you're right on that. I think time of day does affect that some, but I, I think too, that what that brush is providing a lot of times is, um, a break from the, I'm going to use an H here, homogeny. <laughs> um, that's fancy. Th- I'm telling you what, um, <laughs> It, it provides that. So we, we often, and I've gotten in trouble for this too, at a, at a deal bringing up hap, you know, habitat and quail being an edge species mm-hmm. and, and yeah. Craig Harper, uh, a biologist out of the university of Tennessee, he was like, that's all we give them, you know, in Tennessee that, that, that a lot of times that's all we're giving them. So they're not, you look at, a you look at a, um, a field, if you will, I'm air quoting in Texas that has these, you know, it has grassy cover, it has brushy cover, it has bare ground, it has all those things all the way across the whole, let's say, a, you know, square mile. What's well, all quail cover? It's all quail habitat. And so maybe in the areas you're finding those shrubby outcroppings, mm-hmm. 
you know, it is because of that quote edge that's being provided where you're getting all those intersections of habitat that they need. It's food, cover, shelter all together, you know, in a fairly small spot, you know, space. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's absolutely right. I think, you know, both Marissa and, and Andy bring up good points um, about edge cover. You know, I mean, that's the, those, those brush piles do create, you know, that, that sort of edge cover. Uh, also, you know, like the same thing, like for example, hunting sand sage prairie down here, there's not a lot, of, it's, it's a fairly, you know, very uniform kind of looking, mm -hmm. um, landscape mm -hmm. with, you know, interspersed sand plum thickets and things. So, so when you're looking for edges, you know, a lot of people look for very obvious edges, but a lot of times, uh, I find quail on the edges of two different sort of vegetation types, you know, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the edge of a ragweed flat, you know, getting back into like native sand sage or, or, you know, a little blue stem or something like that, you know, so there, I think that the, you know, depending on time of day, like, well, typically, you know, I'll typically find quail early in the morning, uh, when they go off a roost, uh, I, you know, and again, speaking in generalizations mm -hmm. and, and not speaking in absolutes, I, I, you know, quail will, will generally roost in a fairly open area, uh, you know, not, not like super brushy stuff, but, you know, something that will give them some ability to fly if they're, if they're flushed. And then they, they kind of tend to gravitate toward their feeding areas, you know, and a lot of those feeding areas tend to be open, more open areas, but then, you know, midday loafing cover, I, I'll, I'll tip it when I'm hunting midday, uh, depending on how warm it is, you know, late season, I'll probably hunt feeding areas a little bit later and a little bit longer, but typically by midday, I'm looking for, you know, I'm looking for those brushy areas where they, they kind of tend to, 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 to sort of be comfortable in the middle of the day. It's kind of the same thing as, as hunting pheasants, really. I mean, they, I think they follow a lot of the same pattern, you know, just in different areas. Does that, does that stay consistent depending on the time of year and the seasons that kind of, you know, roosting, loafing, like the different areas that they, they navigate between, um, is that consistent or does that change based on weather and pressure? I don't know. That's a good question. That'd be a question for a biologist. Mm. Andy. I smelled that coming. <laughs> you know, I, I think for us down South, not typically because of the, we don't typically have snow cover. I think that's the thing that would change it. I, I think it, you know, no, no matter seasonality, it's, it's snow cover. When that comes into play, yeah, you're going to see them head more toward um, more, let's say more woody, uh, thicker um, cover for roosting. Is that your dog um, again, Chad? Yes. Okay. <laughs> what, the, so the other thing that I think about it, it's, it's like a corollary to cover, in my opinion. And I've drawn on this when I did about a year ago, I did podcasts with biologists, like a deep dive on each particular quail species, merns. Mm. Oh, yeah. And so I'm, I'm connecting the dots there and I'm connecting the dots to something Chad taught me early on with quail. And I, what I'm weaving towards is water. Chad early on taught me. We hunt windmills in Oklahoma. We hunt around water. When I think about a conversation with Wade Zarlingo in, in Arizona about Gamble's quail, he hunts washes, windmills to washes, right, where water drains. Um, you know, Kirby Bristow in Arizona, John Sherman in New Mexico, the, you know, whether it's scale quail, Mern's quail, um, Gamble's quail, valley quail, uh, particularly in more arid settings, you look for the greener habitat and you look for places where there's water because water attracts bugs. 
So it becomes extremely natural to think about that early season. You pop the crop and it's got grasshoppers in it, and that's really mm -hmm. correlated with water. Does water serve the same magnetism for birds late season, or is that loosen up a little bit and it's more important to find that thicker cover? That's a money ball mm -hmm. question, so it's open for anybody to ask. Go We're ahead, all looking at each other. Yeah, you can't see the screens as you're listening here, but we're all going, you're going to take that? <laughs> I mean, in terms of, of water, I uh, I don't really change my tactics you know, uh, throughout the course of the year. I, I mean, I, I will always try to hunt water if I can find okay. it, mm -hmm. uh, just because I, I do tend to find... Um, more quail around water just because a they need water b uh the the cover around water tends to be a bit thicker right. you know i mean that's uh you know uh, whether it's a, a a wash or a draw in arroya or you know uh, uh just a, a little creek intermittent stream bed you know those are the areas where in the summer you know you're going to have obviously more moisture you're going to have thicker cover growth mm -hmm. and so i mean i don't know if it's a if it's a question of like, you know, they're there because of the water or they're there because of the cover. Yeah, good. Probably that's a good a answer. Bit of both. Yeah. They're, they're definitely interlinked, right? I mean, as you can't have one without the other and it probably mm -hmm. accentuates the benefits of thicker cover by just having a more wet area. So that makes sense, but it is important to like every, every single biologist when we did the deep dive on different species, like, Mm -hmm. It was starting point correlated to water. So for a, a, a quail hunter, whether you're new or old, you know, look through that lens when you're out there for water sources. And, you know, that it, it can be a magnet for, for birds, no matter what kind of bird. But yeah, I think it I, eat more so in arid climates. Yeah. Uh, when I was, I was out in, yeah. Oh, go ahead, Andy. Oh, I was just going to say, I think that's absolutely west of the Mississippi is, is, for the most the farther west you go especially but i don't i don't think that most eastern hunters are going to have that as a consideration primarily because i mean it's the wet time of the year right mm -hmm. now i could go on top of a hill and you know be be it'd be muddy you know it'd be mm -hmm. um just there's a lot of water around yeah. right yeah, now yeah that's a good so point uh, we we don't really have that concern uh any time of the season here um it's primarily either heavy dews early in the season or or just little pockets and pools and knots. I mean, literally like knots in trees at the base of the trees. There's, there's water, water. pools all over yeah. uh, right now. But so like when I was out in New Mexico a few weeks ago. Um, so one of the things that I like to do when I visit a, a new place is, is a, a go hunting with the people who know what they're doing. Hmm. Um, you know, that's, that's the best tactic, but what I, you know, one of the things I kind of like to do beforehand is just take a couple of days and just try to see if I can figure things out on my own. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, most of the times I can't, and it turns into a real, uh, a real sort of Keystone Caper kind of fiasco. <laughs> but, but, you know, <laughs> hence, hence most of my stories in the magazine uh, are deal with failure. Uh, but uh, uh, like hunting gambles quail in New Mexico, I, uh, uh, I, I was, you know, I just I'm driving around, I'm I'm looking at BLM spots and, and state of New Mexico spots, and. And so I hunted a couple of places that had like the right cover, like dry washes, you know, mm. I didn't find any birds. It wasn't until I found a, you know, an area that had a tank that had a little bit of water in it mm. that I actually picked up birds. So the, I, th I do think there's a lot of truth to what Andy says, like the, 
the, the farther east you go, I think water is, is probably has less importance. Yeah. The farther west you go, obviously, it becomes more and more important. Right on. Yeah, that's a good distinction. Uh, all right. Last uh, commercial mention, our friends at Alps Outdoors, uh, again, national sponsor of the organization, uh, sponsor of our Path to the Uplands efforts and partner in this podcast. Um, it's critically important that our listeners go to pheasantsforever or quailforever.org slash mentor pledge. And, and take the pledge to take somebody that doesn't look like you, isn't related to you, out on a hunt. Or even just take them for a walk with your dog. Get them introduced into the outdoors and the things that we love. That's at quailforever.org slash mentor pledge. Thanks to Alps Outdoors and thanks to all the mentors teaching new people how to savor the outdoors that we're so passionate about. You're helping save the lifestyle. Uh, tactics, the next section here from, from Chad Love and, and his late season quail hunting tips blog. Um, you got five tactics that you offer the late season quail hunter. Chad, go ahead and uh, let's do a David Letterman style. Hit your top five here. What, what, are, your, what are your tips for tactics? And, and I have to preface this by saying I'm still in the process of writing this blog, so that, that this may change a little bit, you know, by, by the final product. Uh, uh, <laughs> but so basically, you know, the things that I do when I'm, I'm I'm doing late season hunting is is like my number one thing is it's like if a if a spot looks really quaily to you, uh, it's probably looked quaily to everybody else. <laughs> uh, I I ran into this, so I just got back from Kansas. Um, a couple of days ago that where I spent a, a few days up there hunting public land and, and the, the spots that look really good. And, you know, and I, I always sort of like have a quail hunters had a, you know, sort of a joke that, uh, you know, it's like the spot looks quaily, you know, you just, you don't really know why you can't really articulate it too much. I mean, you can sort of, uh, but, uh, just looks good, you know, and, and it's close to the road. Uh, so, <laughs> so the spots that looked really good and were close to the road, um, by and large, did not produce any quail uh, because mm -hmm. by this time in the season, you know they've they've been pounded. Uh, so, so what I had to key in on uh, to to find birds was uh, just little out of the way places, those little pockets that at first glance didn't really look all that great. But if you take a second glance, you know it's like oh, there's a little bit of cover there. You know there's 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 some there's some food uh why not and it, and it's it, it was probably you know maybe a low percentage of spot at, at the beginning of the season uh by the end of the season those low percentage spots may may produce for you so that's that's one of them um i i i generally so one of my my faults as a quail hunter uh is that i do tend to walk fast i kind of have this reputation of of walking fast and walking long and and uh uh uh, to the point where sometimes I sort of tend to over overwalk the dogs. Uh, I, I try to slow down a little bit uh, as, as late, as, you know, hunting late season, because, you know, birds do tend to hold a little bit tighter later in the season. I mean, again, that's one of those sweeping generalizations and sure as sure as I say that someone will go out and, and, and discover the, the opposite, but, uh, <laughs> but they, you know, it, Bob White's, you know, they, they do tend to hold a little bit better in thicker cover. And so late season is colder, you know, generally out, out here. And so, so they do have a tendency to, to, to kind of, uh, uh, hold, hold tighter and, and thinker cover. So that's, uh, that's one of them, uh, keying in on thermal cover, like we were talking earlier, 
uh, I look for the thick stuff. Like for example, hunting Nebraska, you know, one of the things it, it's, it's interesting hunting bobwhite quail in different habitats because you, you have to kind of jettison some of your preconceived notions. Uh, and so I find that the farther North I hunt bobwhites, the more, um, willing they are to use like really thick cover, mm. uh, not only as escape cover, but as, as part of their daily routine, you know, it, the, the example that I use is that I, uh, uh, pheasant hunters are probably really familiar with kochia. You know, it's it's uh, mm-hmm. one of those like devil plants. I, I hate walking through that stuff. That's one of the reasons I I'm not a pheasant hunter because I don't want to walk through that stuff all day. Mm. Like, who thinks that's funny? But uh, uh, I like the rewards. <laughs> not as, worth it. As, as as I as I hunt Nebraska more and more, I find I'm finding quail. Like I I flushed a covey of quail uh, on a little open fields and waters parcel in Nebraska that was. That was using the thickest, gnarliest, meanest looking stand of kochia as as midday loafing cover, you know, <laughs> surrounded by a, a CRP field. And so, you know, that's this just one of those things where you, you can't always like really apply your what you think quail should be in to these, you know, to other areas because it might be different. Um, mm. And so one of my other uh, tactics that I use later on in the season is that I I sometimes tend to to not start so early, you know, like I'm an, I'm an early riser. I like to get out there and heart, start hunting super early every day, but later on in the season, I think quail have a tendency to stay roosted up a little bit longer. And, and I mean, if you can find, you know, a covey roost, if the dog can stumble on, on a covey that's been roosted up, you know, that's great. But I, I tend to start a little bit later, not only to kind of let things warm up because I'm a wimp when it comes to cold, <laughs> uh, but it gives the birds a chance to kind of mill around you know, kind of, kind of go from their roosting area, uh, down into where they're going to be feeding in the morning. And so it's just, it kind of just gives the dogs a little bit more of a chance to find them. Mm. Anything that, mm-hmm. uh, it comes to mind that he may have missed Marissa or Andy, anything that you guys think about from a tactics perspective late season? I want Marissa to go into her disdain for Kosha. You can see it on her face. She should really elaborate. Yeah, I think I I mentioned it just briefly on our late season pheasant hunting. But um, honestly, the only times I've ever hunted Kosha is on the rooster road trip. I think they're trying to haze me out of it. Um, It's horrible. I mean, just imagine, you know, standing up and falling forward and getting caught and not falling down because the not, so not touching thick the thick and gnarly. And oh yeah. no, uh, yeah. if I saw a covey of quail in, in kosher, it would stay in that kosher and I would wish them good day. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think, I, I don't know that, you know, what I would necessarily add, you know, one thing that I really just started to kind of pick up on this year that Chad did mention was the the hunting slower. And I've mm. historically been a very fast hunter as well. And it really is amazing how educated these birds get. And mm-hmm. that um, sometimes by slowing down and they've had more pressure, they've gotten used to the hunters and the dogs that they'll get a little nervous and flush without you having even stumbled upon them. Um, and so just by walking slow, you're putting a little bit more pressure on those birds um, the only other thing that maybe I'd mention, which I, I tend to notice a little bit more in, in pheasant, and I'm not sure if it's as um, rel- relative with quail, but you know, being really quiet when you're getting ready to get out and hunt with these birds because they're educated, because they've mm-hmm. been around the block now for a while, um, you know, 
get your collars on your dogs ready ahead of time, get all that stuff mm -hmm. ready to go. So when you pull up to your spot, you're ready to just jump in and get started. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, Absolutely. It, it is like, you know, I, I make a lot of fun of pheasant hunters, but you know, as, as you get later on in the season, uh, you do have a tendency to, to maybe hunt quail a little bit more like a pheasant mm -hmm. uh, because they, I mean, they're smart birds. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, they, they, they adapt and they learn. And uh, uh, so I, I think that that slowing down, that's probably that's <laughs> you get the prize today. It's awesome. <laughs> what is your dog make... getting a cell phone call? Right? Uh, I, I guess so. Maybe. Jeez. But uh, but yeah. So you know, like for example, uh, you know, like I I always get irritated when I go quill hunting with pheasant hunters because like you go on, you you, you get a, the dogs go on point, mm -hmm. you know, and and there's there's hopefully a cubby there and it's like they just walk so slowly into the into it's like will you please hurry up i mean it's like these you know these birds are not going to wait for you you know it's like and and i don't and it's i think it's part of that whole like you know you you hunt slow for pheasants and heavy cover makes them nervous and they have a tendency to flush and mm -hmm. so later on in the season i it's it's hard for me to slow down but I do make that attempt to kind of slow down a little bit. So I don't think that's generally a pheasant hunting tactic. I think. Are you sure? I think it's the people that you hunt with that are just slow. Everybody's slower than Chad. Let's well, see. and the other thing, Fit cover. I, the other thing, like if you bring people that have never hunted with pointing dogs before, out, oh, that's true. That's a good that, thing. It, it, like people that have grown up with labs or goldens or whatever, tremendous dogs, but they encounter their first ever dog on point. People don't really know what to do. So they, they approach super slow and they don't know that they need to move like fast and move in an arc to, you know, like, cause you don't want to walk right up the butt of a dog on point. Right. And like, you got to, so I think that's that's not necessarily a generation about uh, pheasant hunters. Maybe the people you hunt with, but it's are, more. Are you gonna just, have to edit this part? Uh, no, no. I just I I think that's worthwhile to point out that the, there's just differences <laughs> that come because generally there's more pointing dog owners in the quail world than there is in the pheasant world, and that just happens to be kind of a, a little bit of the difference. You bring in people that haven't been. Mm -hmm. Uh, approaching a locked up dog with a covey of quail on the nose, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and, and I think it brings about a point again, referencing what James Martin said a couple podcasts ago was a lot of times, you know, his point was trust the dog, mm -hmm. uh, that there'll be, there'll be points that they used to just call, um, unproductive you know, false points, but now they're unproductive mm -hmm. because those birds were, there was a bird there. Mm -hmm. There was a, a bird or a covey there. Uh, it just, you know, sometimes, you know, when we think now I'm getting the phone. <laughs> uh, now, I feel very now, when we, <laughs> now when we think of, you know, a lot of times on a quail point, you are, you're going to go five yards. Maybe he's like, go 50, you know, go yeah. upwind a lot farther than you think um that to get those points and i remember in college we would do um the quail census at ames plantation which is kind of where they have the national bird dog field trials in west tennessee and we would walk um it would be a group of 10 or so of us walking in in line transects 20 yards apart 20 meters apart i mean it's biological you know sampling's got to be meters but um <laughs> but we would walk 20 meters apart and we would like they 
the researchers would follow us uh, and have coveys collared and we were missing uh, 20 to 25, maybe even more percentage mm. of the coveys at that 20 meter spacing. And so then they added dogs into these sick, you know, transect samples and we were still missing mm. 20% of wow. the birds. Uh, and, and so just a lot of times that slowing down mm -hmm. a little bit uh, and really letting that dog work is, is going to be more productive, especially late season. So as you were talking, you know, Chad's got a great list focused on tactics for finding birds. And what I was thinking about is like, okay, so here's, here's the piece of the story. And I drove two and a half hours to Arizona with my own dogs to go hunt Mern's quail, right? Two and a half. Two, I'm sorry. Two and a half, two and a half days. Two and a half days. Okay. Uh, two and a half days really driving from Minneapolis to Arizona. And, it, it, you know, we, we, we got there a little early, so we, we got a pin from a friend to hunt scale quail. And we, we pull up, and we're just so excited. You know, you look around, there's mountains, and it's 60 degrees, and it's just gorgeous. And change clothes from driving clothes to hunting clothes and get collars on the dogs and let the dogs out of the truck. And um, by golly, my, my two pups lock up, pointing on her 50 yards out of the truck. And it's like, oh, angels are singing, and I've reached, <laughs> I've reached Valhalla. And I walk up to that, um, and there in this brush, these scale quail, and, and it, a covey explodes, and I flock shot the shit out of that, <laughs> uh, right? And I should have shot, that in his big job. Squeeze the trigger two times, and I have no idea what I was shooting at. I, <laughs> and, and obviously, I've I've hunted quail a number of times, but I just yeah, I, but I've man. reverted back to like just complete you get a pass on oh, right. it's like it's crazy. the perfect setup it's everything i've been dreaming of driving two days two and a half days i've driven two thousand miles and here it oh. is before me and i just completely swing and miss um that went well. so so two thoughts here for folks that are thinking about quail hunting number one you know shooting a cubby of quail is dramatically different than a pheasant hunt, a rough grouse hunt. Way different. Uh, dramatically different. So things to think about. A covey of quail, 11 birds, rises one, and it's like a swarm of giant bumblebees coming off the ground. It, it, you hear them before you see them. And it's – so stop and think about that. It, it's one of the most amazing things in nature. You know, if you got 12 quail rising off the ground, you have – 24 wing beats in unison and it is it, it's like a, a hum you and, and you can feel and it is amazing and it take the hunting out of it it's just it's life-altering how cool it is but then you put a shotgun in your hands <laughs> and you need to slow it down like a baseball player at the plate. And I apologize for another baseball analogy. But if you think about Ted Williams talking about being able to see the seams on a baseball, to hit the seam, to tell you exactly where on the baseball, you need to slow it down in your mind, get in the zone, that euphoric state where you can pick out one bird one bird out of that group and it generally invariably is the one bird that breaks left or breaks right and if you're hunting with a with a pal 
you both end up shooting at that you, same bird, yes. right? Like, I got one. Like I shot at the same one. Cause it's That's the what one, I do every time right? just so that I can claim it. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> but but it's human nature. It's where your eye gets attracted to. It's the one that breaks. And that's fine, but just know that you need to pick one out. Yeah. And it's generally the bird that breaks from the group is the one that draws the eye. So, yeah. mm-hmm. but that's fine. That's generally with the one you're going to shoot at, but pick that out singular, lead it, do, make the shot like you would on a pheasant or rough grouse or a sharp tail. And, um, but pick the one bird out. The second thing shooting quail, and I think this relates closely to sharpies they're my experience and this is where you guys can correct me there generally is a sleeper bird um mm. i definitely found mm. that with well for sure merns get up in waves yes sharpie i'm, I'm sorry scalies uh, by golly there was always a sleeper bird in scalies so if mm. you lose your mind which is gonna happen when that, that covey rises, slow yourself down. Even if you miss that first shot, slow yourself down. Do not crack open your shotgun. Leave the shell in and, and wait because there is going to be a sleeper bird that offers up a much more easy singular shot that if you stay focused, um, that bird genetically is ready to get out of the gene pool because they're sleeping. They're not flying with the crowd (laughs) and slow yourself down and take that shot and you'll make a much more effective shot. Um, Right or wrong on that sleeper bird with other species of quail. Oh yeah, absolutely. Especially with scale quail, you know, and bobs too. Uh, Mm -hmm. But, uh, but yeah. So like, as far as missing another thing, that I think I'll mess a lot of people up with quail is that, I mean, quail are extremely fast flyers. I mean, you know, I mean, they're, they're quick, but you know, the, the dynamics of a cubby rise and the fact that they are generally so much, you know, so close to you, I think there's the perception that, and one of the reasons that I, I think everybody misses quail is like, people think that they're flying so fast. And it's like, I got to get the shot off mm-hmm. fast. I got to get it. I've got to get it off now. Whereas like with a pheasant, I mean, I've thought a lot about missing because I I miss both pheasants and quail with, with equal talent. Uh, And it's just kind of a different kind of missing. Like with pheasants, uh, I, I I often have a lot of overconfidence with pheasants because, you know, generally it's one bird, you get up, they're a big bird. And it's kind of like shooting a duck, you know, it's like they're, I think they're not flying as fast as they really are. Mm -hmm. And so, and I have a little bit of overconfidence. And so I, I, I tend to, to shoot, probably a little bit later with a pheasant than I should and I miss a lot and, and don't lead it right with a quail, you know, same thing. I mean, even people who've been hunting quail their entire life. I mean, you get up a covey rise and you, you, you think I've got to get the shot off now and, and you, you rush the shot and you, mm-hmm. you've got a little bit more time with a quail than you think you do, you know? And it's, it's, it's all, it's all about, like you said, slowing down and picking out a bird and then staying with that bird. The, the other thing, and a buddy that I was hunting quail with recently said, you know, people make fun of former vice president Cheney for shooting his buddy, you know, on a, mm-hmm. on a quail hunt. And, you know, it take, I don't care what side of the aisle politically you stand, um, a covey rise where quail are flying different directions does create a challenging situation for safety. 
and it is a it's fundamentally confusing. It, and it's different thing. than every other type of species, in my opinion. They, um, so your friends, your co, your hunting partners, your dogs, when a covey rises, um, it is a more challenging safety situation than most every other upland bird hunt. So slow mm-hmm. the hell down. And if you miss, mm-hmm. and but it's a safe shot, great. You know, don't sweat it. Just slow mm-hmm. the heck down. Um, there's no, there's no bird that's worth in, in a safety issue with your dog or with your mm-hmm. friend. Um, so, it, you know, you you do. You should walk into a quail hunt expecting to go home empty. You really should. Um, your first, second time, because it takes a little bit to get used to the chaos of a rising covey of quail. And then even when you get used to the chaos, you're going to flock shoot the shit out of your first couple. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you just are. Yeah. Yeah. And and even, even on singles, you know, you can overthink yourself. Uh, Mm -hmm. Tristan, there's Aaron, our videographer has got some fantastic footage of me in New Mexico, uh, whiffing on, probably the easiest double on scaled quail I've, I've ever been presented with. And so, I, you know, we, we were, we were hunting with my young, my young pup, the one who keeps sneezing. In the background. <laughs> uh, and, and this is the trip where she kind of put everything together. She really started, mm. you know, pointing quail. She was doing really well for the first two days. And then on the third day, she kind of reverted back to sort of being a puppy. And so we were running her and she, she got into a big covey of scalies, busted them, just like ran straight through them, you know, birds everywhere. And we weren't shooting, you know, since it was a, her, a pup and uh, we weren't shooting birds that weren't pointed that day. And, uh, and so I finally kind of got her under control and she, she found, she went on point. I mean, this beautiful picture, perfect magazine cover point. She had circled back around and was, was actually staring at us. You know, I mean, she was about 50 yards out straight tail. I, and me being the magazine editor, should have stopped and gotten some pictures as I was walking <laughs> up on this point because uh, it would have been perfect. But uh, I didn't. I was so worried about getting this bird for her because, you know, she's gone on point, done everything mm. right. And so I'm walking in, I'm, I'm walking in and I'm just thinking, I'm thinking, I got to get this bird. I got to get this bird. I got to get this bird. And so I, I get about 15 yards in front of her two scale quail get up, present, you know, my favorite sort of quarter and away shot. And then I started thinking double on film, double on film. I'm gonna look awesome. Uh-huh. You know, it's like you this is oh yeah, absolutely. Uh-huh. Took two, I I just I I flock shot a a, a double, yeah. you know, yeah, and just yeah. whiffed on that both space shots. in between. And and Aaron, I, I think Aaron will use it. My my body language said everything, you know. So I mean it happens to everybody and it, and it happens on Covey rises and singles. Yeah. They're just hard birds to hit. It's a perfect yeah. transition to the final section of your, your blog, and that's about expectations. And, and Chad, you write, um, parameters of success shouldn't be the same late season as they are early season. It's time you adopt a trophy mindset. So take us from there as we as we round uh, round third base with this uh, this. Uh, yeah. and, and, and I'll preface this by saying this is something, I mean, this is sort of a mindset that I think that quail hunters need to adopt regardless of season, you know, or regardless of what time in this, in the season it may be, uh, is, is sort of resetting your expectations because I, I think modern quail hunters, uh, shouldn't be in it for, you know, obviously for, for limits or for numbers of birds or for like really fill in the freezer. I mean, this is, 
it, it's it's an experience, you know. I mean, and, and it's it's sort of a transcendental experience for a lot of us. This is why we love it. And so, you know, so so this kind of applies, I think, season wide. But specifically for late season, I mean, you know, you you, you have smaller coveys that have been hunted all season long. You know, they're smarter birds. Like a, a bird burning born in August is is a grizzled veteran you know by mid-january i mean they only have bobs on on average have like a two-year lifespan so i mean you know this year's brood is is halfway through its natural lifespan and so you know it learns a lot in that small window of time that it's been hunted uh so you know so so you're not going to see as many birds so don't expect to see these you know big giant cubby rises and you know and things like that uh and because also you're going to have bad weather you know you're going to have days days like 50 mile per hour winds in Nebraska, where you probably shouldn't be hunting, but you go out anyway. Uh, so you're going to have to temper your expectations in that regard. You know, uh, there are going to be a lot more days late in the season where you're going to get blanked than, than probably there will be in the early season. Uh, and, and another thing that I, I, I tend to try to do is I, I shoot fewer birds in the late season. Uh, you know, I know that, that by the time you get into February, a lot of those birds that make it into February are going to be carryover birds. Ooh. And that's not to say that I still don't hunt into February. I do, but just be cognizant and aware of, of how many birds you're taking in February and, and realize that, you know, you, you probably shouldn't be shooting all that many birds, you know, I mean, one, two, three birds is for me. Well, hell that's, I mean, that's a good outing anytime of, of mm -hmm. the season, but, but especially in the late season, I really try to limit myself in the number of birds that I shoot. Uh, and I think that's probably about it. Well, I think in a positive way that our, you know, today's hunter is great with that expectation for the most part. I think, yeah. um, you know, our hunters are, are out there for the experience. They're out there to, to enjoy the sport, the dog work, um, and have the chance at some birds for sure. But, um, yeah, I think most people are tempering their expectations season long, uh, for those, those results. And, and you do see more and more, at least in the, on the gram, in the Instagram world where, um quail hunting has become you know I, I think about northern state folks we you know they escaped to florida to go flats fishing in in the winter months right to, <laughs> yes and chad's dog is still going at it um where where like ocean fishing is part of a vacation for for mm -hmm. for folks right whereas there, there seems to be a, a surge in the number of people that escape to different places in quail country, whether that's the Southeast and chasing Bob Whites and kind of mm -hmm. a historic, you know, plantation setting um, mm -hmm. or, you know, the deserts of Arizona and New Mexico or West Texas where, you know, escape the, the polar vortex of the mm -hmm. North country and bring your bird dog or even just escape into a, a, you know, one day quail hunt in some warm temperatures where you can get sunshine on your, on your shoulders a little bit and, and experience a different kind of a hunt. And it, it seems like more and more people are um, tasting different quail species experiences that way, at least, that's how it's portrayed on Instagram to me. <laughs> I, I don't know. What do you What do you think? Do you have that impression too? More people are um, experiencing quail through travel these days. Oh, absolutely. I think uh, I, I think they they are. Uh, you you know you look at a place like uh, Southern Arizona, which has become 
you know, a, a very popular destination with, uh, with out-of-state quail hunters, especially late in the season. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Kansas this year was uh, uh, a hot destination for a lot of, of uh, uh, hunters from across the nation. And so I, I think it brings up an interesting point, you know, that with those late season birds, I mean, I, I, I kind of look at quail hunting as, as a, as a trophy pursuit anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I, 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 I like the idea of, of having that mindset and maybe not being so focused on, and I, like, like Andy said, I, I think that most modern quail hunters are that way. Now, now, obviously, you know, in the past, like I grew up hearing, you know, tales of, you know, guys who could walk out in the back 40 and, you know, and fill a gunny sack full of bobs. And, you know, it's not anything like the good old days. You know, it's like, well, okay, then that's great, but I'm not living in the good old days. I'm, I'm living mm-hmm. now. And so I, uh, I, I approach things a little bit differently than some of the, and like I said, most modern quail hunters do, I think approach it a little bit differently than sort of like the traditional historic kind of attitudes. Uh, and, I, you know, just like with birds, like with, with Merns, you know, go down there, take a trophy bird, and uh, or or two and, and and call it good. I think that if you reset your expectations to to have more of the experience rather than you know a tailgate shot, then I think uh, you'll get a lot more out of it. Yeah. Well said. Um, all right. So as as we close out, I'll ask each of you for your your closing thoughts for this episode of On the Wing podcast. But before we go there, I do want a um, special thank you to Sound Gear Sport Dog. Alps Outdoors and Federal Ammunition for bringing you today's Path to the Uplands episode of On the Wing Podcast and sponsoring uh, Chad's blog in this entire um, uh, month of content. So thank you, Sound Gear, Sport Dog, Alps Outdoors, and Federal Ammunition. Uh, all right, around the horn, closing thoughts. <coughs> Andy, you're batting leadoff uh, this particular episode uh what say you as clothing thought closing thoughts for late season quail hunting tips i'm glad i get to go first because i only had one thought and if it was stolen i was gonna be dead (laughs) airspace so um i i I think that something chad touched on it's not really a closer but it, it it goes back to more of those tactics that you know you mentioned chad if it looked like good quail cover it's near the road. It's more than likely been hunted. And I think what I've seen through kind of learning the hard way uh, for Midwestern trips, whether it be Kansas or Nebraska or, or wherever, um, it's also true probably that those big areas that are known for quail or a big public area uh, that a lot of people use as an anchor to maybe quail hunt out of, uh, those areas are going to be pounded. And, and those small areas within 20 miles of there are also probably going to be pounded. And so really, really take time to, to, to look um, a little farther, a little wider and, and a little farther off the road um, for those little nuggets. And it might be, you know, it's, it's quote again, edge cover, but it's just a transition. It could even be a grass waterway that has a little brush that's grown up in it. Um, It it could be uh, a little, um, a draw that, has you know some food adjacent that it might be a half mile off the road um and it might be a half mile walk one way you get a covey you turn around and come out and you might have to do that five or six times in a day but those are the the keys to success i think in late season where you just really are you're thinking a little differently you're willing to put in a little more shoe leather on it 
and uh, it'll be successful. Very well said. Marissa, your, your final thought. Yeah, you know, I think we, we kind of touched on that a little bit throughout the show, but, uh, you know, really late season, whether you're a newer hunter, whether you're a seasoned hunter, um, just remember why you're out there. Uh, I think it's, it's, <laughs> my, the dog yeah, my dog is uh, <laughs> resituating. Um, All this quail talk is like, where are we going? Yeah. When are we going? <laughs> Um, but I think it's just important to remember to keep a positive mindset. It's really hard sometimes to get frustrated, whether you're a new hunter and you're flock shooting or you're, um, you know, a seasoned hunter and you're just not running into the birds. This time of year is it's just hard because it, it started off at a high note. You're seeing a lot of birds and you're just really having to put in um, a lot more time and a lot more energy to find those birds. You're getting tired. The dogs are getting mm. tired. Um, you know, so just keep a positive mindset. Remember why you're out there. Remember that it's about the experience. Um, you know, you're, you're able to enjoy the beauty of the uplands. And I think that that's why we're all out there. Um, you know, never take for granted the beauty of a covey rise. That's something that a lot of us, a lot of people don't have the opportunity to see. So consider yourself lucky if you get to see that on the hunt. You know, if I was, um, if I had to go right now, you would have stole two of my three. So <laughs> yeah. well, she just stole yeah, one. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> so I'll tap dance for a yeah. second for you, because I, I, I definitely, you know, wanted to reiterate the covey rise, right? That, that you feel it. It's, it's sort of it makes a hunt when when they rise whether or not you're successful or not and just the beautiful landscapes you you know if you're taking a photo for the gram you don't need a dead bird of quail country wherever that is to make it beautiful mm -hmm. so i tap dance for you just to reiterate some points chad what 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 do you have as a closing thought well nothing now because <laughs> stole everything but uh, uh, so I'm, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. And uh, it, so it, to me, late season hunting is really more, it, more than anything else, it sort of encapsulates why I hunt, why, why I upland hunt. Because, you know, you think of, of early season hunting, and I say this as someone who endured, and I use the word endured. Uh, the the Kansas Quail Opener this year because it mm. was I mean it was it was it was a great time I, you know and 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 I don't begrudge anybody uh, the ability to and the, the the desire to get out there and hunt but I mean it was tough finding places to hunt in Kansas public spots and hunt to to hunt Kansas on opening weekend this year so I mean so it, it you didn't really get the like for lack of a better term sort of the purity of the experience here I am starting to sound like a writer again. Uh, <laughs> And so for me, what, what late season hunting is for me, it, it allows me to get out there with just myself and the dog and the landscape. You know, there there are far fewer hunters late season. A lot of, a lot of people have, have given up because it's a little bit tougher. There are fewer birds. Uh, they've gone on to other things, you know, whether it's deer hunting or football or, you know, whatever. Uh, and so you have this opportunity, this opportunity to, to, to be out there and, and to kind of just like listen to the silence and it just like really kind of soak it in and uh and, and get that experience and you know you may not get as many birds as what you'd get in the early season but you but you get something that is a little bit more intrinsic yeah. than just birds yeah and so i would i would highly uh, uh urge anyone who wants to uh uh anyone who's interested in quail hunting to to not forego the late season because you get something in the late season that that you can't really get 
very easily earlier in the season. Yeah. Um, so, and then my, my final thought is it, it relates back to if you are lucky enough to have a bird in your hand, uh, you know, you mentioned you, you gunny sack a quail, you know, people think quail are small and you need like a mess of them to have on your plate to be full. That's not the reality. You're really like, dumb. The reality yeah. is like, I think one and a half quail Honestly, one and a half quail will fill up your normal belly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I eat two. Yeah. You know, two's my limit. Yeah. So <clears throat> you really don't it, you need a whole bunch of quail to make an unbelievable meal, especially when you start thinking about putting that on a, you know, whatever your favorite side is. You know, and I always mm -hmm. relate it to coming up with side dishes that are unique to the area where that quail was harvested or whatever the species is, you know, if it's a, mm -hmm. a Southwest, a Mexican sort of, um, you know, preparation related to scale quail or Mern's quail or, you know, Southeast and you got, you know, bourbon grits, grits right? Shrimp and grits with the bourbon sauce on your quail or, you know, prickly pear sort of approach for Southwest. Um, you know, I don't know what you do in Oklahoma, you know, barbecue sand plum, sand plum jelly. Sand plum, well, you do mm. have a hell of a sand plum jelly. I, I, I sent you sand plum jelly one yeah, time. You, you did. Did, one did time, you use it with quail? One time, and that, that jar is that one time. for a long time. I didn't get I, any sand Marissa, plum I, jelly. Did you, Andy? This side of the screen, we're, we're pretty much black. I'm not very happy about this. But, right, my uh, but the point is, you know, one and a half birds, if you got you and you and a partner, uh, three birds makes a glorious quail dinner. So you don't need a lot to have a really memorable path to the uplands meal uh, with quail. So think about that as your closing thought. Um, I'll, I'll point folks to Chad's blog on Quail Forever website, the path to the uplands content. Uh, final thanks to Sound Gear, Sport Dog, Alps, and Federal for bringing this content. Um, thank you, Marissa Jensen, Andy Edwards, and uh, Chad Love for being a part of this episode. Um, and thanks to you, the listener, for putting up with our our banter. Hopefully you've enjoyed it and can take yeah, uh, a tip, uh, whether it's where to find birds, how to hunt birds, or maybe even uh, how to successfully shoot that sleeper bird. Uh, for for uh, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, uh, remind you, please go to the website and become a member of our organization. Uh, COVID's been tough on our membership. We're 20,000 members down right now because of our inability to hold banquets across the country. That means we need you, the listener, to go to pheasantsforever.org or quailforever.org. Heck, you're listening to the Quail Forever Hunting Tips episode. Right. Go to quailforever.org, become a member, and join us. Get involved in conservation. I'm Bob St. Pierre reminding you to always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks for listening.